Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. The Enviro Show it is here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richards together with Don Fani and uh, Kim Winter. Very nice to have you along to share with us just some of the green issues of the day. Hope you're going to stay with us right through until 10 o'clock. Well, I'm going to get straight into the menu here because we've got lots to say today. First up, Malawi and all the floods there. Well, we're going to be chatting to High Commissioner, the Her Excellency Mrs. Stella Ndao, who's going to give us a status of the flood damage there and what perhaps we can all do to help. After that, we're going to talk to the Womin Conference people. In fact, it's a Womin gathering in which a Women's Rights Alliance have all come together in Johannesburg to take a, take a stand against coal. We're going to be talking to Caroline Ntwapani from Action Aid, South Africa, and also to Veronica Zano from Zimbabwe Environmental Lawyers to find out what it is that's getting them hot under the collar. And finally, talking of hot, a very hotly contested debate, right now, in the light of their fast diminishing numbers, rhino horn, to trade, or not to trade, which will save the creature from extinction. Well, it's at the current rate of poaching, it could happen within the next 12 years if things are left uh, as they are, so do stay tuned. And don't forget that if you're interested to hear it at a later stage again, uh, this show is podcast. You can check our site. It's uh, safm.co.za, safm.co.za. Otherwise, check our Facebook page, get all the info up there, all our websites and so on and so forth. Check it out. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And if you feel you would like to join us on the, li- on the line right here on the show right now, you can give us a call. The number is 0892102010, 0892102010. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Well, the latest statistics from flood-ravaged Malawi are that apparently something like 200,000 people have been displaced. It seems that uh, almost 200 dead, though the figure could be way higher, and more than one-third of the country has been declared a disaster zone. Well, the rains are continuing, not only worsening the situation, but hampering rescue and relief operations. Hunger, cholera and malaria all standing there just waiting to strike. So what is to be done and what could have perhaps been done to prepare against the flooding? And what can we do to try and help? Well, on the line we have High Commissioner Her Excellency Mrs Stella Ndao. May I call you Stella? Yes, please, Nancy. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you very much. And my condolences to your countrymen who seem to be having a really, really bad time. What's the situation right at the moment? Uh, the situation, uh, um, sorry, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your keen interest about what is happening in Malawi now. Mm. As you might be aware, this is the worst flood disaster to have hit Malawi. And as you've rightly said, uh, it's about 15 out of 28 districts that have been affected, and it is mostly in the southern region. And uh, as of yesterday, the government uh, of Malawi estimates that uh, 200 lives have been lost, and right now, uh, we still have about 153 people missing. And um, about 121,000 households uh, have been displaced. And right now, uh, the, cover- the government is trying to with relief and rescue efforts. And organizations um, are trying to help uh, with food, shelter, to try to alleviate the situation. So as of now, that's the situation that um, it's still 200 lives which have been lost and haven't, uh, and we still have people who are missing. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's how it is now. One can only imagine what it's going to be like when the floods sort of finally abate and, and yes, we're left with the devastation. Yes. What, what's mm-hmm. When, it, they, they, when they, they have actually done the, the, yeah. the, the, the assessment. Yeah. What's, yes. the, what's the forecast? Is it still actually raining? What is the long-term forecast or short and long-term? 
It is raining right now, uh, and it, have, it has subsided in some areas. But uh, the, the forecast is that we might have heavy rains next week. But these heavy rains, it, it is uh, estimated that they might affect the central and the northern part of the district. But so far, you know, the rains have subsided. It's going, yes. to, it's going to affect everything. I mean, I believe it's affected school. Well, obviously, it's affected school children. It's affected just everything. But most of all, it's affecting your food supplies because I imagine yes. most, of, most of your crops are now underwater. Exactly, exactly. As you know that Malawi is agricultural based mm. and people had already planted. So right now it is estimated that uh, 63,531 hectares have been submerged by the floodwaters. And around 120,000 farmers, you know, countrywide have been ex- have been affected as well. So it is expected that uh, there's going to be a loss of about 48,000 metric tons, which is a huge loss for the country. Yeah. And as I've already said, that uh, you know, uh, people have lost almost everything. People have lost their lives. People have lost homes, and uh, including the farmland. And people have been forced to move to higher ground. Yeah. Yeah, and even the schools, even the schools right now are being used for temporary shelter. Actually, uh, 415 schools have been affected. Sure. You know, they have, yes, they have no roofs. You know, they are destroyed, completely damaged. You know, the long-term consequences are just too horrendous to consider. But you mentioned the right at the beginning there that it's the worst ever. I mean, Malawi has seen floods before. Is this is this way worse than anything that you've had before? Yes, yes. Actually, this is way worse because normally maybe you'd have the floods affect maybe two parts of the country, our uh, our um, southern tip, which is the lower Shire, Nsanje and Chikwawa. And sometimes it will also affect maybe Karonga in, in, in the northern region and Salima. But now it's almost half of the country because it's 15 out of 28 districts. So this is, this is really one of the, the worst, actually, the floods. Uh, we've had in the country. You know, I was reading earlier about Mozambique, and they are obviously partly having similar, uh, sort of almost a sort of similar situation. But it seems that they may have been prepared. Was there anything that you could, the country could have done that may have lessened the extent of the damage? Um, yeah, we have the national, you know, uh, the national disaster uh, plan in the country, which is there, and also the um, the Department of National Disasters. And they were, uh, you know, they were equipped with some of the, uh, like, relief items which they keep up, and also the money which is budgeted for. But since, you know, the rains, I think it has just been too much. We've never had such type of rains. Normally by, you know, by this time around, January, you know, we wouldn't have as much rain as we've had now. But this, seriously, this has been the worst. But nobody ever, you know, thought about it. And you have to wonder yes. to yourself if it's going to continue getting as bad as this, because as we know with climate change, you know, weather patterns are erratic. Um, we could be seeing this again and again. But leaving aside the predictions, I suppose what's most important is what's happening right now, all those people that have been affected. What, if anything, can be done? I, mean, I think the gift of the givers have already been quite active. But is there anything else that, you know, regular South Africans can do to help? Yes, yes. People can still help. Uh, in the short term, we still need food. We still need uh, kitchen utensils. We still need blankets. We still need um, clothing. And for women, you know, we need sanitary towels. Mm-hmm. We need dignity, uh, dignity kits. We also need um, maybe water treatments, chemicals that can be used. 
And uh, in the long term, as you know that the bridges have been lost, uh, construction materials will be needed. And tents as well are still needed because, you know, uh, as of today, um, other parts of the country uh, they also experienced uh, heavy rains. As I'm talking to you now, there's a group, I think, in one part of the uh, one area in Mulanje, which is staying in a mosque, and their houses have been damaged because of the rains. So uh, in the short-term, relief efforts are still needed, and in the long-term, we still need construction uh, materials. And what people can do, they can, um, they can donate these materials either to our Malawi High Commission in, in, in Pretoria, or they can go to the Malawi Consulate General, in Johannesburg. And also the Malawians, the Malawian community itself in South Africa has mobilized itself, you know, to help alleviate the situation back home. And um, there's, um, there's an initiative, an SMS initiative, whereby people can send a text message to the number 36726 mm-hmm. with words Malawi flags. And um, once they do that, they're going to donate five ranch. Okay. Each text, yes, each, uh, each, each, each text message costs five rand, so they can do that. And anything really that they can donate is going to go a long way, you know, to, yeah, yeah. to, so, add, to, so to assist. Can they take it directly to the Malawian High Commission in Pretoria? Yes, they can okay. do that. They can do that. Or also, they can do that, they can also donate to the Malawi Consulate General in Johannesburg. Okay. Yes. Gosh, Sela, thank you very much. Very, very best of luck with, uh, you know, not just what's happening immediately, but with the many months ahead of drying mm-hmm. out and repairing the damage. Thank you very much for your time okay. and best of luck. Thank you so much for no, having me. Second. And I also want to thank uh, all organizations that are helping us and also the government of South Africa, which has actually today uh, deployed a team of um, experts to access the situation on the ground so that they can send more advanced team and also to the Malawi community and all those development partners that are helping us. Thank you so much. And we still need more of yeah. this help. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. having us. Bless you. Very best of luck to all. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. That was High Commissioner, Her Excellency, Mrs. Stella Ndau. Well, there you go. You've got the information if you'd like to donate to the Malawian High Commission in Pretoria, otherwise the Malawian Consulate General in Johannesburg. And if you want to do the very most simple thing, you can do it this minute, get your phone. And uh, SMS the number, the words Malawi floods to 36726, 36726, Malawi floods. SMS those words and you'll be donating five rand. Stay with us. It's the Enviro Show. The Enviro Show. Well, another very big environmental issue, of course, is that of the ongoing crisis of ESCOM's load shedding here in South Africa. And as demand for electricity continues to rise, it's going to be an issue with us for some time, I suspect. And compounding the problem is the fact that fossil-fueled electricity is in itself adding to global warming and the climate change that is resulting in those sort of extreme weather patterns that we were talking about, hearing about that happening there in Malawi. Well, taken to the extreme, coal kills. Those are the words of a KwaZulu-Natal woman who's witnessed the adverse effects of coal mining for over 10 years. Well, currently underway in Johannesburg is a five-day exchange program. It's been put together by WOMIN, that's uh, a Women's Regional Rights Alliance, and they're standing their ground together against coal. 
The purpose of the gathering, from what I understand, is for a collection of women to be heard, to listen, to share their experiences and perhaps to look at an action agenda going forward. Well, we have on the line two of those women. We have Caroline Ntwapane, she's the project officer from Action Aid South Africa, and also Veronica Zano of Zela, which is Zimbabwe Environmental Lawyers Association. Well, we have them both on the line. Caroline, I'm going to start with you. Are you with us? Yes, hi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, um, I think we're getting a little bit of uh, echo there, a little bit of feedback. So I'm suggesting if you're both on the line, maybe just one of you is on the line. Caroline, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. And yeah, yeah we are both on the line. Okay. Oh, well, that's good. That's it. Whatever it was has disappeared. Um, Caroline, give us the overview here. It's wonderful that so many of you have got together. You've come from uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Mozambique, Botswana. Why? Just give us the, the short reason. Um, I think the reason is for women to come together collectively and to talk about the issues that are affecting them, selected to mining issues. I'm sure you've, you've seen our theme that women stand their ground against big coal. Yeah. So the experience that women have been you know, sharing, they've been coming fundamental issues that need to be dealt with, and some of them they need emergency so we want to give women voices to make sure that they have stopped. They, 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 there is a stop to depriving women to get involved, and we want to promote women's um, participation in the issues that are affecting them as well. Especially when we come into mining issues, we know that women, I think, they might be more affected than any other people because of their role that they play in the families as the custodian of many things, like women that are responsible for collecting water, making fire, and many things. Um, so, And the women are experiences, and to also talk about actions that they can take uh, moving forward. Yeah. Why women in particular? I mean, it has to be said that men and children also suffer, but give us some examples of the sort of experiences that women have shared at the gathering. Um, I think we know that up until now, the women... You know, like, like I've been saying, that women are affected by mining and they've stayed silent and they were never being involved. So, and these are the voices that are being most heard by the mining industries. Like, for example, if you go to the areas like KwaZulu Natal, you find women that they have to walk for a long distance, they don't have water, while the pipe from the mine is just passing nearby their houses and takes the water to the mines, but the women, they have to go and stand long queues wake up in the morning to collect water. So these are the kind of examples that women have been facing. But also, this large-scale development, what are they bringing into the lives of the women? How are they changing the lifestyle of women in the communities? I mean, in South Africa and also in many areas, the way we, we, we've been I mean, sharing the experiences is that those are the areas where you find in every mining communities you find high rate of teenage pregnancy, you find high rates of sexual violation, and you also find high rates of prostitution because now women, they are trying to find a way of surviving. And, and then also the, 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 the migrate workers that are coming into the areas, leaving their families, they also increase the women's vulnerability. To, to prostitutions and also to teenage. Yeah, um, yeah. so there are a lot of social, yes. a lot of quite serious social issues that yes. go with it, yes. uh, aside from the mining the mining itself. We're going to get to, we're going to talk to Veronica a little bit in a little moment about that. But it seems to me that what you've been doing is not just all sitting in one room talking and, and sharing your experiences. You've actually been out there, you've been on field trips. Where have you been? 
Um, what have you seen? The women, they went to KZN and another field visit was in the Val and another field visit was in Pumalanga. And this is just to make sure that we strengthen the position of women and, and protect their rights in the context of, you know, large-scale development. And what we're hoping to get is that human rights, women, I mean, human rights of water, to water, food, and healthy environment are recognized and effectively protected. And this exchange problem visiting to different areas, I mean, these are the only voices that um, we are starting to, 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 to listen to them and get issues out there. And then and people, women, they're becoming stronger when they understand that this is not only happening in their areas. If they know that another woman in Zambia is facing the same problem and sharing how are they dealing with the problem, this has, it helps to strengthen I mean, the, the, the position of yeah. women and help them to be able to take action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in the Val, we've listened to women who are saying that because of, in the Val, is, is, you know that we have a petrochemical um, industry such as, you know, Sassol, and the women are saying, you know, like, they, 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 the bed odors, they have problems of sinus, asthma, skin irritations, and a lot of problems that comes with the company. And when you go to Mpumalanga, you've seen the mining the, the abandoned mines and those areas that have been left unrehabilitated and that are affecting communities, the dust, the I mean, communities, they complain about the dust, the blowing from the mines, I mean, directly to their houses, how people are now suffering, you know, illnesses like TB and then black lung cancers in, in, in their communities. Yeah. And yeah. nobody's doing anything or nobody's saying anything to them. So these are the issues that has been coming out from this exchange program. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the net result is when you've, when you've finished the whole program and can put something forward. But it's not just about the suffering of women and their families that we're looking at here. It's also about the environmental threat. Um, uh, Caroline, I think that uh, Veronica is there with you. Could yes. you pass the phone to her? Okay. We're talking to, we've just been talking to Caroline Ntapane. She's from Action Aid South Africa. But we have Veronica Zano on the line. She's a legal officer with the Zimbabwe Environmental Lawyers Association. Veronica, are you there? Oh, hello. Hamid. Hi. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. We're just listening to what Caroline had to say. They're very much to do with how women are suffering and all the issues that mining brings to their daily lives. But looking at the bigger picture, I mean, as an environmental lawyer, somebody looking at the broader picture, it's also to do with mining itself, the actual issue of mining, the fact that we're using so much coal. It is, after all, women stand their ground against big coal. What are you hoping will come out of this exchange that will affect some sort of change in the coal mining industry? Uh, basically, why we're having this women exchange visit uh, from Southern African countries where mine, coal mining is taking place is for us as women to uh, put our issues together uh, raise awareness to women on the potential environmental, economic, social uh, impacts that emanating from uh, coal mining. And ultimately what we want to do as women is to come together and put our issues together so that we can raise the issues uh, to virtual policymakers in our respective countries so that in the SADC region we can have a consensus as um, women affected by coal mining which we can table to our policymakers so that when they make their policies uh, with regards to mining uh, in our respective countries, they can understand and have a way forward in terms of understanding how best they can do sustainable mining 
uh, if that is possible with yeah. our country. Yeah, I was going to say sustainable mining. It sounds like a sort of contradiction in terms. But, you know, as an environmental lawyer, who are the guilty parties and what's to be done? I mean, if, if, you, if you legislate against something or you take somebody to court because of what they're doing environmentally, is that going to really help? Is, is it perhaps not alternatives we need to look at? I think um, right now at the moment, uh, what governed govern by some of our on legal and policy frameworks that we have in our countries, various environmental legislation. Uh, we have what we call the polluter-paste principle. That means anybody who is supposed to carry out mining operations and they do not do them in the manner that is sustainable and they do harm to the environment, uh, they are supposed to uh, be responsible and liable. And um, also in to ensure that that polluter-paste principle is applied, it means that our government officials should be responsible to monitor and ensure that that is not taking place. So it's a twofold duty by the state and also by the mining companies. And um, if we are supposed to, uh, inf to to follow that, I think it's something that um, means that um, this duty is, is, is it involves not only just the state and uh, the mining companies, but it also involves even the communities because they are the ones that are living in direct contact with this issues and therefore they also need to be consulted and understand what exactly is going on, whether this mining is actually taking place in accordance with the law. And if such is not followed, then litigation has to be applied because that is also a form of remedy and redress which is even awaited by the, uh, by the laws. And therefore it is very essential that when this is not being followed, litigation should actually be yeah. Yeah, well, you talk about it in accordance with the law. I'm looking at this range of different countries and I imagine all your laws are very different. Yes, they are very different, but mm. also very similar because um, uh, they all have a, uh, the principle of uh, the polluter peace principle, and they also provide access to the courts for justice in, t in cases where uh, there's been cases of uh, poor environmental practices by any person, regardless of whether it's a state or a mining company or an individual. Just finally, I'm just, I know that your website is presently under construction, but I think that people can have a look at your Facebook page, and that's Women African Women Unite Against Destructive Resource Extraction. Uh, we're going to put that up on our Facebook page. But um, ultimately, what will come out of it? I mean, do, will there be a book? Will there be a paper? Will there be a, a deputation, a delegation? What physically is going to happen at the end of Women Stand Their Ground Against Big Coal? Uh, basically, for now... Uh what we can just say is we are going to produce a report out of this and we'll be constantly updating our Facebook page, which you made reference to, mm. so that we can have all the other women who are not even part of this meeting but that have an interest also following the proceedings and to also contribute towards how we can uh, form and shape our strategies. The meeting will be coming to an end on Saturday. Mm. So basically, uh, the next two days is we are meeting up as women uh, to form strategies on how to best go forward with, this, uh, with these issues. I think this is going to be a very, um, these this are going to be different um, processes and um, initiatives uh, being uh, being raised by the women. So this is just going to be from a local, national, and you know uh, even regional level mm. initiatives. Mm. Uh, very briefly, Veronica, who funded it? Uh, we have a, we have a variety of funders. Yeah. Uh, we have um, the Norwegian People's Aid. Uh, we have. Um, uh, uh, Africa, Rupena, 
the Ford Foundation. Yeah, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are many people who've come to the party to, to help support the work. I'm going to give out that website, at least the uh, Facebook page once again. But we will put it up on our Facebook page, so there'll be certainly be more information there. Veronica, thank you very much, Veronica Zano with the Zimbabwe Environmental Lawyers Association, also Caroline Ntapani. She's from Action Aid South Africa. Very best of luck, ladies. Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. Well, there you go. That's uh, what women are doing. They're saying it against the coal mining industry. And if you've got thoughts on that, you can always let us know. You can pop us a mail. We're at enviro at safm.co.za. It's nice to hear your thoughts. Enviro at safm.co.za. But in a minute, it's rhinos. The Enviro Show. Well, finally on the show tonight, Rhino's latest statistics show that the official number of poached rhino stands at 1,215. That's as of 2014. Something has to be done or soon because at the estimated current rate, they could be wiped out within 12 years and there will be no rhino to save. So what's to be done? Well, a spokesperson for the WWF says in 2015, we need to keep working together on the strategic interventions which will have the greatest impact and result in the greatest benefits for our rhinos. Well, the question that we're asking tonight, and it's a kind of a timely one, is, is part of the solution to saving rhino to trade in rhino horn, farm rhinos in other words, or is that the very worst thing we could be doing? Well, we have two opposing viewpoints, two speakers we're going to hear from tonight. First up, Colin Bell, who's a tourism professional who has worked in Botswana and Namibia to reintroduce and protect rhino. And he'll be followed by Andrew van Heerden, who worked with the Conservation Imperative and Osprey Films to very recently release a film called Rhino in Crisis, A Blueprint for Survival. They are recommending trade in rhino horn, whereas Colin Bell is not. Well, at the premiere of the movie, that there was much debate on the issue, and just last night a, a counter-presentation, if you like, was hosted by Francis Garrod of the Conservation Action Trust. We have with me uh, in the studio Andrew van Heerden. He's going to be telling us what are his thoughts and telling us a little bit about Rhino and Crisis, the movie, in a minute. But earlier I spoke to Colin Bell, who first explained his interest. Where I'm coming from is that I'm one of the few people who've ever been part of an extinction of rhinos in the wild. And I'm also one of the few people who solved the problem. And it all goes back to when I started my wildlife career in Botswana in 1977. It was my first job straight out of university. I was an economics graduate, and the last thing I wanted to do was work in the field of economics, and I was offered a job in Botswana, and I headed up there, and it is an extraordinary experience. Being in Botswana in the 70s and 80s is the Wild West. It is pushing the frontier barriers. And I was working as a safari guide. I couldn't be happier. And in those early days, rhinos were everywhere. On every safari, we saw rhinos. They were just part of the environment. As were lions, elephants, and all the rest, we had the complete experience. And then, in the early 80s, it got tougher and tougher. We still saw rhinos, but there were not so many, and we didn't really... You know, we had no science on our side. There weren't any sort of their censuses, but we just got the feeling that maybe something was on the go. And then suddenly, around about 85, 86, quah, the lights went out. Suddenly, we never saw another rhino. And it's only once you've been through the whole experience and suddenly you've had no rhinos that you suddenly realize what part of your life they played. And it's one of those inevitable questions on every single safari. You've seen the most extraordinary wildlife, and then somebody would ask, why aren't we seeing any rhinos? And you had to go and tell everybody, well, they were poached out. Mm -hmm. And it's an extraordinarily terrible part of the holiday and the safari to actually go through that whole explanation with guests 
that there were rhinos here and there are no more yeah, rhinos. Yeah. Well, as you were explaining, I think there have been three rhino wars, one back in the 1840s, the one that you've just described and what we're living in now, which seems to be the most drastic with 1,000, between 1,200 and 1,500 having been taken out just last year. The big question is to trade rhino horn or not to trade. Off the top of your head, why shouldn't we be? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Well, first of all, Everything hinges around what we are legally allowed to do. At the moment, the laws of CITES, which governs illicit wildlife trade and the trade of wildlife animals around the world, says that we cannot trade rhinos, very simply. So the onus is on the folks who want to trade rhino horns to provide a compelling reason why we shouldn't trade. The problem with trading rhino horns is the world's seen what's happened with elephants. And the rhino folks will always say, no, no, elephants are totally different, but there was absolutely a parallel between rhinos and elephants. And the elephants went through the same terrible situation. The 70s and 80s, they were persecuted. And then suddenly in 89 and 90, led by the East Africans, they went around mainly the American markets, and they said, folks, please, no more trading in ivory products. And overnight, they had a big burn in Nairobi, and overnight, the demand for ivory products disappeared. And from that moment onwards, all the wildlife numbers of elephants throughout East Africa in particular climbed dramatically. We had this complete resurgence of elephants. You know, I remember guiding in the Serengeti in the, in the 80s, and the only time you really saw an elephant was when it was sprinting back into the forest. But you never saw a relaxed elephant. But in the 90s, we saw a complete turnaround. The numbers of elephants throughout Africa started increasing again, all the way through to 2008. And suddenly in 2008, we had a complete reversal. And what happened in 2008, South Africa went to the world and said, please, we want to sell our ivory stocks and the money will go for conservation. Can you let us sell 108 tons? And which we did. In 2008, mainly the Chinese went and bought a whole lot of ivory off us. And what they did overnight is they colluded with the Japanese. They bought all our stocks. They tripled the price. And over the years, they've been leaking two tons of ivory into the market in China. And that's used for carvings and ornaments and all the rest of it. As soon as you've got a legal market, you create an illegal market where the criminal, criminal syndicates get involved and they launder their illegal poached ivory into the legal markets. And that source, you can't tell the difference. Is that poached ivory or is that legal ivory? You can't do it. So once you create the precedent, and we've seen it now with elephants, that once you have a legal market, you create the ability for the criminal syndicates to work underneath and launder their products. So you draw the parallels with, um, with Rhino Horn, and you see through the years. Suddenly, I mean, the pivotal time was 1993. We had huge rhino poaching going on throughout Africa, Zambia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, all the way through until 1993. But 1993, something pivotal happened where the world got behind the banning of the use of rhino horn. And all the major consumers, which was Yemen, anybody from Yemen who was using rhino horn for their daggers, the Yemenese government stopped it. The route into Yemen was stopped. The Bazaar Djibouti, the Koreans stopped. The Americans and the, the, world, the Western world went to Taiwan and said, if you continue using rhino horn the level you are, we will stop buying your electronic goods. Taiwan stopped. But the big one was China, even though it had been a member of society since the 70s, China came on board in the 1993s, and they stopped the use of rhino horn. And from 1994 all the way for the next 14 years, rhinos had the best time ever. They really survived in the wild, 
and their numbers grew, both black and white. The blacks had been plummeting from about half a million in the 1900s all the way down to about 2003, no, 2,300 in uh, 1993. From 1994, they grew all the way to about 5,000 of today. So we've had a massive, massive turnaround from the day when everybody stopped using rhino horn. So one of the sort of pro-trade arguments is that CITES has never worked. And they cite the sort of examples when they compare what happened uh, with the rhino numbers in 1977. And yes, today's numbers are well below 1977. But the trade ban via CITES did work. We saw a dramatic increase in the rhino populations from 1994 once everybody had come on site and there was no more consumption of rhino products. So, Colin, let me stop you right there. So what went wrong? Because those years you described from sort of 93 to... 2008 as the golden years, what went wrong? Well, that's when criminal syndicates realized that there was a little loophole. And the loophole is that they could come and shoot rhinos in South Africa. They could buy a rhino hunt for about 150,000 through to about 450,000 rand, that is. And they they then created the market, a brand new market in Asia. And they went out and said, rhino horn was the cure for cancer. And suddenly there was a demand for rhino horn. And then it became a status symbol. So they come. Criminal syndicates have been gently manipulating the Asian markets to create demand. And they came over here and legally bought a hunt and then took that horn overseas back to Asia along with a CITES permit. And that's the most important thing. So they now had legal rhino horns in their possession with a CITES permit. And over the period from 2003 to 2010, around about 500 permits were sold to either Vietnamese or Vietnamese were working through East Africa, uh, Eastern Europe. And that's where the biggest population of Vietnamese are outside of Vietnam. So they took these uh, permits and these hunts, and they sort of now have got the ability to use those permits in Asia to cover up their illicit activities and, and legalize effectively an illegal product. So we've got a situation where the use of rhino horn has been started brand new with brand new needs and it's now the worst thing of all is that the rhino horn market has now drifted into jewelry. And very recently, some colleagues of ours went over to Vietnam and watched how the rhino horn is now being carved into ivory pieces and being sold in the grams at $100 a gram, or now $100,000 for a kilogram of rhino horn. And this is really, this is the big problem. Yeah. This demand is now surging at, at extraordinary levels. But let's get back to society. CITES needs is meeting in Cape Town next year in March. CITES needs to make a decision whether we're going to go and trade rhino horn because the South African government will approach the uh, CITES authority to amend the rules. If that application from South Africa is going to be approved, two-thirds of the CITES countries, that's 121 countries, need to approve the change in the legislation. But what happened last year was the tragedy for the pro-traders is that at the site, uh, there was a meeting called in London, where it is a whole illicit wildlife trade meeting. It is hosted by the two princes. Nearly 70 countries were at that meeting, and they discussed the whole trade issue. And every single country there, nearly 70 countries, unanimously voted not to trade for the next 10 years. Mm. So what's happened is that you only need 60 countries to veto any changes to legislation. So no matter how much South Africa might go to societies and beg and plead, they need 121 countries to go and agree to the change in the Okay, okay. I'm, I'm with you, Colin. I'm sort of following your argument. We're going to be talking to Andrew van Heerden in just a minute. But 
the bottom line here is it looks like the demand has been sort of hyped enormously and it's not going away anytime soon. So what are we going to do if we don't trade? What, how are we going to stop this, this escalating rhino poaching? Okay, well, the most important thing is I think we have to realize that trade cannot work. There's a whole lot of economic papers which have been written about that the trading of rhino horn has no chance of succeeding. So what we have to do, if we're going to solve this rhino crisis, we have to, on both sides, both the pro-traders and the anti-traders, have to jettison their extremists. And then the extreme lobbies on both sides. Both sides have to come together around a plan B. And what we have to do is we have to all agree as stakeholders in this industry. And remember that the tourism industry is one of the biggest stakeholders. And the tourism industry has never been consulted. And around 80% of the tourism industry is totally against trade. But they know that if we go and trade, there's going to be trade, uh, tourism boycotts and all that. And the tourism industry in South Africa directly supports one in seven South Africans. So we've got to make a decision. Are we going to support a legislation which would endanger the ability of one in seven South Africans to put food on their table and to feed their kids and all the rest of it? So, so I mean, having been involved in the tourist industry for so long, what might they do? Are they going to be able to raise sufficient amount of money to um, get the sufficient amount of muscle that we need to stamp out the poaching? How could the tourism industry... Well, that's it. So we, we've got to come behind a... Unite behind a plan B. There's two issues which have to change. One of them, yes, we have to get money, and number two, we have to bring communities inside into the tourism industry at, at scale. And that's not happened. In spite of South Africa's 20 years of democracy, we still have excluded the... The, the communities. And it's not a pro-trade thing or an anti-trade thing. The issue is the tourism industry at scale has to change. We have to bring them in. So how do we raise the money? And there's, yes, we can go and sell our horns, but what we will do if we sell our horns, we're going to increase demand and we're going to find that our rhinos in the wild are going to be extinct even quicker. And I think the one thing about the pro-trade and the anti-trade lobby, we agree that at the absolute outset, from here 12 years out, if we do not have changes in 12 years, there'll be no rhinos in the wild. The view we have is that if we go and trade it, it'll be much, much less. We'll escalate the demand, we'll escalate poaching, and we might have wild rhinos in the wild extinct within seven years. The tourism industry cannot afford to take the chance. So we have to come and unite behind a plan B, which has got a whole lot of initiatives and changes which need to change in South Africa, a whole lot of stuff which has to change in Asia, and a whole lot of stuff which has to change around the world. We have to unite around a common plan which will raise money, and the tourism industry is the perfect way to raise money. You know, at the moment, there's an initiative called the Thompson Levy. The Thompson Levy is 470 hotels around South Africa. Each add-on 1% is a voluntary contribution to the bottom of their bills, and that money goes to market South Africa internationally. Each year, that raises 104 million rands. Now, the tourism industry is 95 billion. If the entire industry got behind this and added 1% from the bottom of the bill, we would have nearly 1 billion rand a year. If we only had a 50% sign-up, we'd have 500 million a year, each year, ad infinitum, which we could put to conservation causes. We could go and do all the things we need. You know, what we're not doing is we're not targeting, targeting the middleman. We don't have a whistleblower fund. We don't make it appealing for the fellow who's at the front line to go and dob in the middleman, because at the moment, there isn't a middle or whistleblower fund. We need to change legislation. We need to go and ramp up. This. We need to involve high tech. There's a whole lot of uh, solutions. And that's what uh, we, it, it, interestingly enough, two pro-traders and two anti-traders got ourselves into a room uh, not so long ago, and we locked the door, and we had 
a professional invigilator. And we actually, after about six hours, came up that we actually agreed to go forward with the United Plan. And it's a, we both have to give a bit, and we both have to, to sort of uh, make compromises. But uh, we believe that if census prevailed, and we took the vast majority of South Africans, so that we could create a Plan B, which would be absolutely perfect, which would ensure that rhinos will be in the wild forever, and we could make sure that the vast majority of the South Africans involved in the rhino industry would be completely satisfied with that. Colin, lastly, where can one see this Plan B? How can people sign up or find out more about it? Well, it's all brand new. What the stakes have changed. You see what the pro traders have done. They've created a 90-minute movie, and they've gone out and they've made the most appalling assumptions. They go and make these incredible claims. They want this movie to go to cabinet. They really are pushing the agenda. But you can understand why. There's only about 300 really hardcore folks who've gone long on rhinos. And, the, you know, the one particular guy's got a 1,000 rhinos. His rhino horn are worth nothing right now, and they're worth $3 billion if we trade. Those are the kind of folks who are really ramping up. And what we have to do is we have to first nullify that, make sure that the vast majority of South Africans disagree to trade. Then, in the process, we the four of us are about to start embarking on writing up the Plan B. So in the next uh, month or two, we'll have it ready, where we feel that the vast majority of the stakeholders will agree to this plan, and then we need to present it to South Africa, and off we go. Well, there you are. That was Colin Bell, and uh, that was the argument against rhino trade. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about uh, where, where he's coming from, check the two websites. I'm gonna, we're going to put these up on our, our Facebook page as well. Africa's Finest .co.za is the name of the book that uh, Colin has co-authored. Africa's Finest .co.za or conservationaction.co.za conservationaction.co.za Well in the interest of fairness and justice we're going to give uh, going to give the other side of the coin and some airing here Andrew van Heerden is with me in the studio lovely to have you Andrew thank you very Thanks, much Nancy. and um, we're just going to take a quick break Thank you very much. Just had to quickly adjust the microphone there. So Andrew Van Heerden has been involved with the uh, with the movie that was uh, aforementioned movie. It's called Rhino in Crisis, a blueprint for survival. It's been put together with the Conservation Imperative and Osprey Films, and it's very much to do with recommending trade in rhino horn. Well, Andrew, you've been sitting here listening to what Colin had to say <laughs> together with me, and I, I want to sort of say, go for it. Give us your argument. Tell us a little bit about the film first. Who made it, why uh, did they make it, and where did it come from? Well, firstly, the film is about opinions, and I think uh, uh, Colin Bell had a few things wrong there. He, he firstly referred to one private owner who, who, who can make a whole lot of money. But in actual fact, the film was made. There were a lot of people who contributed, like John Hanks, Brian Child, Michael Eustace, Michael Chastrofs, Ian Player, Shane Mahoney, all people of solid conservation backgrounds. There's almost a thousand years of experience amongst them. We took 40 hours of interviews with these people who and, and reduced it into a 90-minute film. Um, these people that, that contributed to the film have a solid... Uh, 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 amount of experience but, in but who, conservation. Who are they? Because, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? That they do have experience equally as well, Collins had experience. These people are... John Hanks, Professor John Hanks has had a life in, in conservation. Brian Child, his whole family has gone through conservation from uh, in Zimbabwe. He, his, his father was Graham Child, who invent, they invented Campfire Project. Um, Michael Eustace is an economist 
um, who's who's had years of experience in, in, in economy, and plus he's he's very keen conservationist. So there are people who are coming at this idea from all sorts of different yeah. areas. It, it wasn't just an aha moment, like, let's just no. suddenly trade. You know, this is something that's been around the, for a little are, while. These are professionals. I mean, you've got a person like Ian Player who contributed to the movie and who's very firmly pro-trade, and he's been in conservation for something like 60 years. And, I mean, in fact, he was the patron to, to, to producing this movie. So I think it's a little bit unfair to try and insinuate that I stand to make money out of it, I certainly don't. Yeah. Or any one of these people stand to make you money know, what, out of it. You know, what we really wanted to do was yeah. get you both in the studio oh, at the no. same time so that we oh. could sort of, you know, um, thrash it out because that's one one of the things that Colin says is what we all need to do is get together and find a way forward on yeah. this. So, so leaving aside the argument pro and against, just give us a little bit of an idea of, of what it is that you're propo- what the film proposes. I think, yeah, well, what the film does is it looks at the the, the situation at the moment. Um, Currently, the CITES ban makes it illegal to make money out of Rana without killing it. Mm. So the only way you can make money out of Rana is by killing it, hunting it legally, okay? If otherwise, what what it does is it it makes Rana valueless to the owner and it provides a value to a criminal element. So what you're doing is you're creating an incentive for criminals. You're not creating an incentive whereby you actually have an opportunity for sustainable development. You're actually creating criminals. And until such time as we are able to change that, we're not going to change the fate of the rhino. So until such time as the value of rhino is given to the people who own and attend the rhino, I'm afraid that we're going to see ourselves lose it. so the, the, the issue that I also wanted to raise a little bit was Colin talks about the elephant scenario. Mm. And I think, you know, Colin's seen the film. And on the film, we, we openly said that the elephant's sale of ivory was an outright failure. It was the most ridiculous idea. It's a, so anti-capitalist. Imagine having a sale once every 10, 15 years on an auction and only having two buyers. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Besides that, okay, there are papers that have been written that have shown that, in fact, even though there was this once-off idiotic sale of ivory in the way that it went, it didn't contribute to an increase in, 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 in poaching. So that, that I just want to get out of the way. Mm. Um, the problem that we're dealing with here is that we, we have a, 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 a situation where the illegal, where the demand for rhino horn, which, which, which uh, people like the anti-traders are trying to say that in fact the rhino horn is worthless. Yes, it's worthless to me, but there are people out there who are prepared to die for it and who are prepared to kill for it and who are prepared to pay obscene amounts of money for it. So we're sitting in a situation now in this country where we have, and they guess, about 30 tons of rhino horn under Sand Park's uh, hands and um, private rhino owners have probably got five tons, but being the fact that you can ho- take the horn from the rhino, you can harvest it without killing the rhino at all. If the private owners about 4,000, 5,000 rhino, if you take 3,000 of those rhinos averaging about a kilo of a horn a year, you've got three tons a year that can come out of that. So when you look at the situation here, there is sitting in bank vaults at the moment, there's a billion dollars billion US dollars worth of rhino horn, if you put a figure of $30,000 per kilo. Some people say 60000 some people say 80000 we're working on 30000 At this stage, we are able to sell comfortably forever 
as long as the rhino population doesn't decline, we are able to sell 1.3 billion rands worth of horn a year. Now, what that does is it creates a legal conduit whereby the market can be met. So what we have at the moment is, it is, is an uncontrolled trade. What we want to do is have a controlled trade with an audit trail. And we believe that that can be done. And we use partial um, horn which has been stored from the sand parks along with horn that is generated from the private industry. And we don't have to take any rhinos out of the wild to use this. We, we have the, uh, the R rhinos in private owners at, at hands at the moment. What, two things, a number of things. What, one thing, would we not be increasing the demand? No, I don't see that. By, I see by, that by feeding it? Uh, you're not, what happens is um, supply and demand are equal and brought into balance by price. So if you, if you um, let's have a look at the situation with, say, Rolex watches, okay? Um, you might say in South Africa we need, we could probably have a demand of 50 million people who want a Rolex watch. But they only sell 2,000 Rolex watches a year. That's because the price is so high. So the supply is 2,000 Rolexes, the demand is 2,000 Rolexes. It is not our intention to go out there and undercut the price. We need to set the price at a market-related level whereby it provides an incentive for people to, 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 to use horn and provides a disincentive for people to go and poach rhino. So it needs to be in that on-the-market-related price. The other issue is the farming. Uh, you know, we, we would then having to be, we would then be having to farm rhinos quite literally to, to to supply their horn. Who would stand to make money then from the farming of the and the farming and the sale of the rhino? There's two uh, uh, proposals or sale or, or, or ways of building up a central selling organisation, which is one of them. The other one is that you uh, is that you take that and certain levies get paid towards, so that it gets split up evenly. So, in other words, um, a certain if if uh, the Sam Parks have fifteen thousand rhino and private rhino owners have five thousand rhino, then a certain amount of that mu must go to Sand Parks, proportional to the number of rhinos that they have to to, to the private owners. The, the the model upon which the, this um, the the trade model is something that definitely can be worked on. The other one is com is by using a central selling organisation, whereby you set your price and you sell it just like the beers do with their diamonds, which is incidentally we had Gary Ralph uh, from De Beers participating in our interview, and he said that you can control the market as long as you have control of the supply. If you have more than 50% of the supply, you can control the market, which is what they did with diamonds. We're talking to Andrew van Heerden. He's talking uh, about the film called Rhino in Crisis, a blueprint for survival. I'm going to give you the details. In fact, I'm going to give you the Facebook details in just a minute. We'll be right back. Bafana Bafana will be no pushovers as they square up against the Black Stars on the 27th of January 2050 on your favorite radio station and in your home of football, SABC One. Catch this action live from Estadio Dumongo with kickoff at 8 p.m. SABC Sport, bringing Equatorial Guinea closer to you.
talking about the issue of rhino horn, whether to trade it or not to trade it, which would do the greatest uh, service to our dwindling population of rhinos. Andrew Van Hidden, um, two issues that Colin brought up in the, in the few minutes that we have left. There's the, the question of the tour, tourism industry, whether or not they've been uh, consulted on this, whether or not they, it's relevant, and also the community involvement. We talk about who's going to be making any money, who's benefiting, whose assets are rhinos. Tell us your feeling on the community involvement. We've been involved with the community project through a company called Resource Africa, who've, who've worked on a system whereby they can introduce rhinos into community areas whereby the people look after them. Should the trade in rhino horn be legalized, they can then work on harvesting the horn and making money for their for their community. It is it, there's no reason why um, some game farmers should be able to make money and it shouldn't apply the same reasoning to communities. This which we see here is an opportunity to change people's livelihoods. It's a plan where people can take ownership and value wildlife in a kind of community level. Rather than what's happening at the moment is they see no value to wildlife whatsoever. They look over the fence and they see wealthy tourists with expensive binoculars and heavy 4x4s paying exorbitant fees to the tourist industry and they are in rags on the other side of the fence. Mm. It, it doesn't always work that way. So we need to get people to see value in wildlife, which is why South Africa is so good. And this is how South Africa saved the rhino, incidentally was through the principle of what is called sustainable utilization by giving wildlife a value and allowing the industry to grow to what it has today. Which brings me back to the tourism industry, the billion dollar tourist industry. I think yeah, there, were, there were big uh, statistics, 95 mm. billion that uh, Colin was quoting, quoting there. Can we not raise some money from the tourism industry? And I think and, that's... And, and yeah. might they, I think another point he made, might they not boycott South Africa if we're busy trading our farming our rhinos. I, I hate this idea of boycotts. I think it's so irresponsible. You know, you're not punishing anyone for anything. You know, we really want to get on and save our wildlife. And I think a boycott is just so irresponsible. But, um, you know, if, if Colin Bell and the tourist industry can raise one billion rand a, a year, I mean, that is fantastic. It, you know, that's absolutely fantastic. But what they haven't done, okay, is they haven't realized how they're going to reach the demand. So they, they can put as much military-style protection that they like. All that happens is rhino horn becomes more valuable, people are prepared to risk more, and they'll still go after the rhino. So if you can't provide a legal conduit, the temptation for them still to take it illegally will always be there. Andrew, I, I can't help feeling I would have given both parties, um, no, hopefully we've fine. been fair and given both parties a, a, an equal saying, but is there, is there no middle ground here? The plan B that to Colin talked about, because after all, at the end of the day, as they say, what we really want to do is save the rhino. Is, is there a chance that you guys could sort of sit down and make a plan together? Oh, I mean, I, it, that's absolutely cool. I just don't see the plan, plan B being any different from plan A. Plan B is literally more of the same. In other words, we haven't started anything new. We're just going to throw more money at it and hope for the best. And unfortunately, we, we told them four years ago that um, we are going to see an increase in poaching. And look what happened. We've lost 4,000 rhino. We're going into a situation now where we're going to another uh, conference of the parties meeting. We stand to lose 6,000 to 10,000 rhino in the next four years. 
And I mean, I can't stand by and let that happen. Yeah. Well, I think the the word that we all agree on is crisis. Yes. And the rhinos indeed are in crisis. If anybody would like to know more about the film or they'd like to know where to get it, your Facebook is Rhino in Crisis, a blueprint for survival. No, actually, it's Conservation Imperative. Okay. So, um, Conservation Imperative. That's, yeah, the Conservation Imperative is our Facebook page. Okay. Yeah. Details on that conservation imperative, that's the Facebook page. But if you've got any thoughts on this whole issue of rhino horn trading or not trading, pop us an email, let us know, enviro at safm.co.za, enviro at safm.co.za. Conservation imperative, you can find them on Facebook, conservationaction.co.za, you can find them equally. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you very much, team Lon Wabofani and Kim Winter. And I'm Nancy Richards. Thank you very much, Nancy. And don't forget that this program has been podcast, www.safm.co.za, if you'd like to hear it all over again. Well, next up, it's time for us to hand over to young Stephen Kirker, waiting in the wings. Hi, Stephen.